It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal prosecution. What if he weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? What the founders were concerned about was not... I asked you a yes yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached... Would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. There's a political process that would have to occur. On- and that question, pressed repeatedly by Judge Florence Pan, was just one of the tough questions that Donald Trump's lawyer faced at the D.C. appellate court today. All three judges on the panel seem skeptical of Trump's claim that he's immune from criminal prosecution for trying to overturn the 2020 election because he was president at the time. The notion that criminal immunity for a president doesn't exist is a shocking holding. It would authorize, for example, the indictment of President Biden in the Western District of Texas after he leaves office for mismanaging the border, allegedly. Trump's attorney, John Sauer, argued that a president can only be criminally prosecuted after Congress has voted to both impeach and convict him on similar charges. Judge Michelle Childs didn't find that argument particularly convincing. But not everybody goes through that process. And of course, it's limited to the certain actors in that regard, but not everybody has to go through that process. Prosecutors later on can come into information and evidence after they've investigated to make their determinations about what they'd like to criminally prosecute. So you're not always confined to whatever would be in the impeachment judgment clause. Whatever the, whatever the practice has been with respect to subordinate officers, the, frame, the evidence from the founding generation is clear as you cannot do that with respect to the beast. My guest is Michael Gerhard, a professor at the University of North Carolina Law School and an expert on impeachment. In fact, his new book is called The Law of Presidential Impeachment. It seemed like the focus of the argument for Trump's lawyer was that under the Constitution's impeachment clause, a president can't be prosecuted unless he's first impeached and convicted over the same charges. Tell me about that argument and what you think of it. It's really dumb. It's not a good argument. There are three judges in the late 1980s that all faced impeachment, and all three were actually tried criminally before they were impeached. And they raised that argument back in the late 1980s, and courts rejected it. There's no constitutional requirement that impeachment precede a criminal investigation or that a criminal investigation precede an impeachment. They're, they're separate proceedings. It's just that simple. 
So then where did they get that argument? Did they make it up out of whole cloth? I think they largely made it up. I think it's designed in part to delay things. Uh, that's first. Secondly, I think it is probably, um, and I'll, this might be the best characterization of it, um, it, it might be loosely based on some constitutional language that seems to leave uh, an inference um, after an impeachment that uh, officials could still remain liable at law. But that's not a command. That's just basically suggesting that after impeachment, um, there, there could be separate legal proceedings. And But I, I would also maybe suggest third, that I think it's just another variation of Trump's arguments, which date back to his presidency, that he, apparently no other president, but he at least is uh, above the law. That led to some really startling hypotheticals. Judge Florence Pan asked, if a president ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival, could he be criminally prosecuted? And Trump's lawyer seemed reluctant over and over again. She tried to press him, yes or no, yes or no. He seemed reluctant to even make a concession there. Well, I think that he was, in a sense, arguing from a corner, so he was already backed in. Um, And I think he thought maybe his best option was just to take a hard line. But I, I think that question, among others, sort of underscores the absurdity of Trump's argument. Did you see any inkling that any of the judges were buying that particular argument? I did not, but that may not mean very much. Uh, There's not always a complete overlap between what happens in an oral argument and what comes out of an opinion. So, you know, uh, lawyers tend to take with a grain of salt all the questioning in an oral argument because lawyers understand it may not necessarily lead to predict exactly what the opinion might look like. But I think before there was any argument... I and other uh, scholars who sort of study this area thought Trump's arguments were probably at best weak, if not absurd. And I think that the judges at least appear to have so far taken a similar sort of approach. So before the argument, I had understood – well, did did the lawyer concede that that then – Trump does not that if his premise is correct about the impeachment clause that Trump does not have absolute presidential immunity was that conceded by him at all I couldn't tell uh, I don't know that the lawyer made any such concession but the lawyer's arguments if you kind of think about them practically speaking the lawyer's arguments in this oral argument today is the same as they were all throughout Trump's presidency and that is that Donald Trump is somehow above the law, that there's no way to hold Donald Trump accountable for anything. Well, I expected more discussion of, of whether Trump's actions on January 6th were part of his official duties or discretionary. Mm-hmm. What did you hear about that particular issue? You know, I was a little surprised that, that that wasn't pressed more so by Trump's lawyers, not because it was a good argument, but just because it's an argument they could make. Um, so... I, I think that um, I don't want to read too much in the silences, you know, on either side, but it strikes me uh, as possible that Trump's lawyers may have recognized that um, they'd have to draw a line 
at some point about where official duties end. Uh, they can't argue that official duties are boundless because the Supreme Court has rejected that more than once. And I think the Trump's lawyers probably were reluctant, therefore, to engage with this issue because they don't want to draw that line. There was one thing that I think one or two of the judges picked up on. Judge Karen Henderson expressed concern that a ruling saying the president doesn't have immunity would lead to politically driven prosecutions of future presidents. How do we write an opinion that would stop the floodgates? Your uh, predecessors in their OLC opinions recognize that criminal liability would be unavoidably political. Which side had the better of that argument? Well, I think that question really has been answered already by the United States Supreme Court. They answered it in a case called Trump versus Vance. And in that Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court ruled that a president, in, in Trump's case then, a sitting president, may be subject to state criminal prosecution. Trump tried to argue in that case, oh, the president could then be subject to all sorts of partisan uh, prosecutions. And the Supreme Court rejected that because the court said there are all sorts of safeguards against that. So it's not, it's not really going to be a, a real or practical concern because if that's the motivation, again, if it's in federal court, federal, federal judges could obviously try to not just look behind it, but so could state judges. And ultimately, a state prosecution of somebody, let's say, who used to be president is still possibly appealable to the United States Supreme Court, which is a whole other safeguard that could exist. So there's no reason to think that the possibility of a prosecution means there may never be a prosecution. Well, Trump suggested on Monday that if the court doesn't rule in his favor and he wins the presidential election, he'd have Joe Biden indicted. So we'll see what happens well, there. Not a good thing, I think, because presidents shouldn't be making that decision yet. Stay right there, Michael. We'll discuss more about the contours of any decision coming up next. And Donald Trump was actually in the courtroom for the oral arguments and had some comments afterwards. And I think we're doing very well. I think it's very unfair when a opponent, a political opponent, is prosecuted by the DOJ, by Biden's DOJ, uh, so they're losing in every poll. They're losing in almost every demographic. Uh, numbers came out today that are uh, really very mind-boggling if you happen to be Joe Biden. And I think they feel this is the way they're going to try and win. And that's not the way it goes. That'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box, and that's a very... It's a very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Never in our nation's history until this case has a president claimed that immunity from criminal prosecution extends beyond his time in office. The president has a unique constitutional role, but he is not above the law. Separation of powers principles, constitutional text, history, precedent, and other immunity doctrines all point to the conclusion that a former president enjoys no immunity from criminal prosecution. James Pierce, a lawyer working with special counsel Jack Smith, explained to the D.C. Appellate Court today why former President Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for his attempt to overturn the 2020 election in his final days as president. Trump was in the packed courtroom listening, even though he was not required to be there. The panel of three judges, two Biden appointees and one George W. Bush appointee, appeared very skeptical about Trump's claim that he has presidential immunity from the criminal charges brought by the special counsel. And his attorney, John Sauer, appeared to be caught by the judge's questions several times, particularly when judges Karen Henderson and Florence Pan noted that the lawyer who represented Trump during his 2021 impeachment trial had in fact suggested that he could later face criminal prosecution. It did not say there could never be raised immunity defense. It said criminal process I'm can sorry. go forward. There's a quote in the congressional record in which your counsel, I'm sorry, your client said through counsel, no former officeholder is immune from investigation. Investigation is what it, there's no immunity to. Well, uh, uh, that may be true of subordinate officers, but as to the principal officer, the president, he is immune unless he is impeached and convicted. He, Again, it comes back to the point he we was, made. He was president at the time, and his position was that no former officeholder is immune. And, in fact, the argument was there's no need to vote for impeachment because we have this backstop, which is criminal prosecution, and it seems that many senators relied on that in voting to acquit. Trump is trying to get the panel to reverse a ruling by federal trial judge Tanya Chutkin, who rejected Trump's immunity defense and suggested he was seeking the power of a monarch. I've been talking to Michael Gerhard, a professor at the University of North Carolina Law School. So the special counsel and Judge Michelle Childs pointed to the fact that Richard Nixon was pardoned upon leaving office to show that it's been assumed that presidents can be prosecuted after leaving office. Is that much of a legal argument, though? I think it's a perfectly good argument because what it's doing is it's trying to ensure that whatever the court does now is going to make sense of the whole system as we've understood it up until now. And so the pardon of Nixon presumed that Nixon could be criminally prosecuted for things he had done as president. That presumption cuts directly against Trump's arguments right now. And by the way, that's not from a Democratic president. There was a question at the beginning of jurisdiction, and it wasn't raised by either of the parties, and it seemed like neither of the parties wanted to endorse it, but it was by an amicus brief that Trump doesn't have the right to make the request before trial, what's known as an interlocutory appeal. Would you explain that and where you think they came out on that? Sure. Well, a jurisdictional issue has to do with whether or not the court or a court has the power to do something. So a jurisdictional issue may be raised at any time, and it may be raised by the court itself 
court doesn't have to rely on the parties to a case because the court's always going to be concerned with, do we have the power to decide this case or even hear this case? And an interlocutory appeal is an appeal that could be made before the end of the case. So an appeal could be made to some higher court based on some concern that may, may be so acute that it could be raised before there's actually been a trial or before there's even been conviction or, or the case is not yet over. I think the court was reasonable in raising this question. The fact that neither side could really address it well might suggest that neither side had thought about it very much. But what is clear is that Trump is trying to raise this now before he's, he's gone to trial, much less having been convicted. And so that raises a question, at least in my mind, not so much about whether there should be an interlocutory appeal, that is a special appeal right now, but what we call a rightness issue. Is the issue really right? Has it matured to the point where a court should decide it? And rightness may also become a concern for the appellate court as well. Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of things the appellate court could do. They could say they don't have jurisdiction at this point. I mean, they could go just based on the Constitution's impeachment clause and Trump's argument there. Yes, I mean, of course, they could craft this any way they like. I think, generally speaking, it has long been understood, and I would even argue well settled, that there's no what we'll call double jeopardy problem with having an impeachment on the one hand and a criminal process on the other. They are two separate proceedings, and an impeachment proceeding is not a criminal proceeding. So the double jeopardy clause, meaning you can't bring two criminal prosecutions for the same misconduct, doesn't apply because impeachment is not a criminal process. Beyond that, I think that the court has to be thinking, among other things, about what kind of precedent are we going to establish here. And if I had to guess, my guess would be that the court's going to not want to establish a precedent that makes it easier for presidents to be above the law. The bottom line is Trump's going to face criminal trial, and he can't avoid that. What's the best argument of all the arguments Trump made? What's the best of them? I confess, I'm not sure any of them are any good. And I mean it seriously. I mean, I, you know, I've studied this for decades. I think these arguments are, they've all been raised to some extent in the past. All have been rejected or found to lack credibility by historians. So I, I, I confess, I, I, I can think of one. And so Trump's lawyer asked for a stay of the opinion so that they right. can appeal. So if they appeal to the full D.C. Circuit, ask for an on-bank hearing, do you think the D.C. Circuit would take that? On bank? Well, I don't know the answer. I'm not sure why the full D.C. Circuit needs to hear this. I think that's another move by Trump's lawyers to delay everything, sort of to throw a lot of legal process at the proceedings against him as a way to kind of delay them in the hopes, I suppose, that Trump will win the presidency and pardon himself or that one of his acolytes will win the presidency and pardon him. But the courts, I think, are aware of the possibility that they're being used here. And generally speaking, courts don't like to be used in that manner. Everyone assumes that this is going to be appealed to the Supreme Court, no matter what happens. And a lot of legal experts are predicting that the court will take the case. But is that necessarily true? No. Let's say, for example, this current panel concludes that none of Trump's arguments are credible and the court rejects all of them. The Supreme Court could simply reject any appeal based in part on the justices considering there's no real issue here. We have to decide because what the panel would have concluded 
is consistent with whatever courts have said before. So there's no there's no compelling reason why the U.S. Supreme Court needs to get needs to intervene at this point. The other thing I I might just raise at this point is to just make note of the fact that Trump is still trying to argue that as a former president, he has some kind of special immunity. The sitting president may not be immune to criminal process. That was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court when Trump was president. It's Trump versus Vance. So as a former president, Donald Trump is making, these are quite long reaches, claiming for a former president immunity that, by the way, no sitting president has ever had. And that just increases the odds, I think, that courts will reject this claim. And the decision from the panel of the D.C. Circuit could come at any time. Thanks so much, Michael. That's Michael Gerhard, a professor at the University of North Carolina Law School. His new book is entitled The Law of Presidential Impeachment. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, do you know what it takes to get on the no-fly list and what it takes to get off? Those questions were explored at the Supreme Court. I'm June Grasso, and this is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This week, the Supreme Court sought to untangle whether an Oregon man can proceed with a lawsuit against the FBI for placing him on its no-fly list before removing him and then calling the matter moot. The justices heard arguments in the case of Jonas Fikre, a U.S. citizen who sued the government over his placement on the list. Fikre says he learned he was on the list in 2010 while traveling to Sudan after FBI agents approached him asking about his association with a particular mosque in Portland. Joining me is Hina Shamsi, director of the ACLU's National Security Project. The ACLU filed an amicus brief in the case. So start out by telling us what happened to Jonas Fikre. Well, Jonas Fikre is a U.S. citizen who discovered that he was on the no-fly list in 2010. And he then filed a lawsuit saying that the government wrongly placed him on the list in violation of his constitutionally protected right to travel and that the procedures that the government used to place him on the list violated fundamental due process. So the case moved forward, and the government then removed him from the list in 2016 
And since then, it is argued that his lawsuit could not go forward because it was moot. There was no live case or controversy to be adjudicated. Mr. Fikre then appealed from a district court judgment uh, in the government's favor, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals twice issued decisions in Mr. Fikre's favor, rejecting the government's attempts to end the case. And that's when the government appealed to the Supreme Court, and that's the argument that the court heard. Does the FBI frequently refuse to tell someone why they've been placed on the no-fly list or why they've been taken off the list? Absolutely. Um, You know, and this is one of our fundamental problems with the no-fly list and why we've been working on litigating these issues for about 20 years, which is that the no-fly list program essentially operates in a black box of executive branch discretion and secrecy. The government refuses usually to tell people the full reasons and most often any reason for placing people um, on the no-fly list. And so for decades, we and other rights groups have documented the secrecy and unfairness of this program and its devastating consequences for people's lives, yet it remains a, a black box. Let me be more specific. Americans who are on the no-fly list are most often left in the dark about why they've been placed on the list. They're not given any meaningful explanation when they are removed, if they are removed, or any guarantee against being wrongfully placed on the list in the future. And the issue before the court was whether Mr. Fikre's case could go forward after he had been removed. Does Mr. Fikre know why he was put on the list? He does not have um, the reasons, all the reasons that he was put on the list. You know, in the argument that took place on Monday, the government repeatedly said, well, we've provided a reason. You know, we've explained the criteria for placement on the no-fly list that was applied to him. But here's the problem. What that means is that the government has disclosed what standard it uses to place people on the no-fly list, and we can talk about why that standard is vague and broad and deeply problematic, but it hasn't disclosed the reasons that it thinks Mr. Fikre satisfied that standard. So Mr. Fikre doesn't know what he's alleged to have done wrong in the first place and how he can, as he argued to the court, you know, know what to do in order not to be placed on the no-fly list again in the future. It seemed as if several of the justices uh, cross ideological lines were sympathetic to Mr. Fikre. Justice Brett Kavanaugh said that's a complete wild card. A return to the list still depends on the FBI's assessment of someone's activity based on a multi-factor security threat threshold. We're in the dark. And Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, how can someone tell you that they're not going to engage in a terrorist activity if they don't know what terrorist activity you claim they did? So catch-22. It is a real catch-22. And it was a concern. You know, the discretion as well as the secrecy is something that the justices, and I think a lot of the justices across the spectrum, were troubled by or expressed concern about. Because... As often happens, 
courts as well as the people who are impacted by the placement are left in the dark in this black box of a program. Justice Elena Kagan suggested that the government should be required to go before a judge in private to explain why someone had been placed on the no-fly list and why they'd been removed from the list and why they would not be returned to the list. And Justice Gorsuch seemed to agree with that. Is that a possible solution here? Well, you know, I want to start with what Justice Gorsuch said, which is that, you know, normally in our legal system, we have a right to know what evidence the government has against us. And Justice Gorsuch rightly said that's due process. That's a pillar of our democracy. And why is it, I think he asked, that an American citizen who's been denied a right and evidence, why shouldn't he be able to determine what's at stake? So, you know, one of the factors and one of the the alternatives proposed during the argument in court was that the government could provide its reasons to a judge um, in camera, meaning, you know, in continued secrecy, for a judge to make a determination. And that would certainly be better than what exists now or what Mr. Fikre was facing, which is not being able to um, have any kind of meaningful guarantee that the government would not place him on the list wrongly again in the future. I think we should still pause and think about what that might mean, though, that the government tells a judge But if you're a person who has been left in the dark about why um, you've been placed on the list in the first place, why you've been denied, as some of my clients have, the right to travel to be with your loved ones on their sick beds, to attend funerals or weddings or graduations, you know, surely more is required to the person impacted themselves. But let's see how the court rules. So the FBI's position is that this is moot. Is that right? The FBI's position was that they have told Mr. Fikre that he would not be placed on the list again, quote, based on currently available information, and that that is enough to end his case. And what Mr. Fikre was arguing was that that isn't enough, that when the government acts as it did here, which is that it voluntarily takes someone off the list, the case is not moot because the standard the government has to meet is to make it absolutely clear that the allegedly wrongful behavior won't happen again. And Mr. Fikre argued that the government hasn't repudiated its decision to put him on the list, and it remained free to return him to the list for the same reasons and using the same procedures that Mr. Fikre alleges were unlawful. So in essence, Mr. Fikre was asking for his case to go forward so he could have his his day in court. The chief justice suggested that the government's promise might be enough Did you get a feel from the justices about what they might do here? Well, I think what leaves me cautiously optimistic about the argument is that most of the justices understood that a system in which a person does not know 
the government's reasons for placing them on the list or taking them off it, that there's not really a guarantee here against the kind of wrongful conduct that is being challenged occurring. Is this the first time the no-fly list has come before the justices? It's not the first time that a no-fly list-related issue has come before the justices. There was a previous case about whether an individual who alleged that he was placed on the no-fly list after he refused to become an informant, whether he could sue to obtain damages under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because he said that, you know, he refused to become an informant because to become an informant would have gone against his religious beliefs. You know, It's important to know that the issue in the case was whether uh, Mr. Fikre's constitutional claims could go forward. The issue was not the lawfulness of the government's no-fly list placement and administrative redress process. The court has never actually ruled on the lawfulness of the no-fly list uh, placement and redress process. But the lawfulness of the government's no-fly list program itself, whether the decision to place people on the list or the constitutionality of the administrative redress process the government provides, none of that was before the court. But to understand whether the case was moot or not, it was necessary for the court to consider what the program is, and as we argued in our friend of the court brief that we submitted to the court, it was necessary to understand government discretion um, and the secrecy that the government asserts in making its decisions. So we identified, in fact, you know, we combed through federal court dockets and we identified 40 U.S. citizens and residents who had challenged their placement on the no-fly list in court. And we found that the government kept secret the full reasons or any reason for placing each of them on the list. And we argued that from what is publicly known, um, the government removed uh, about 70 percent of those people from the list during litigation. And many of the removals occurred just before court imposed deadlines or while awaiting court rulings. So in essence, the government can take people off the list and prevent their challenges to placement or the process from being heard. And we wanted the court to take that into account in making its determination in Mr. Fikre's case. Let me ask you a general question. So mm-hmm. someone gets placed on the no-fly list and they don't know why. Who do they sue to try to find out or to try to get off the list? So. When uh, people are placed on the no-fly list, they can avail themselves of a process called DHS TRIP. It's through DHS. And what that requires is that you submit information to DHS saying, I think I'm on the no-fly list and I'm wrongly on the no-fly list. And the government will review this information, and if you're a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident, it will, after a couple of different stages, um, tell you if you're on the no-fly list. It will tell you what standard it used to place you on the no-fly list. And it can, but as we found, most often does not, 
um, provide you with a summary of the reasons or a reason. But most often we found that the government does not provide all or even most often any reason for placing people on the list. So that's often when people sue to compel constitutional uh, due process to find out why they've been placed on the list and to seek a meaningful process through the court to remove themselves. It'll be interesting to see how far the Supreme Court goes here. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Hannah Shamsi, director of the ACLU's National Security Project. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.